Vine Pairs New York City headquarters and the phone booth. I'm Adam Teeter. <laughs> and I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Yeah, that's right. We are still coming to you live from the Vine Pair headquarters and the phone booth inside the Vine Pair headquarters. And Zach's in his basement. <laughs> I am in my basement, surrounded by wine. <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way. Sounds pretty good. <laughs> um, so for this Friday episode, um, we're going to talk a little bit about, well, first of all, good weeks, guys. Good weeks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Great. All, all, all good so far. Mm-hmm. We're talking a little bit about like, uh, you know, unrepresented wine regions or wine regions that a lot of people don't talk about that much or as much as others, right? So obviously there's – every wine region has its champions, right? So, um, you know, every wine region sort of has places that, you know, have people who love them, whether they're people in the trade um, or people that are, you know – reps, things like that, who really love these regions, but they, they're not as well, uh, known by consumers. And so, you know, Zach, you have a a fun interview coming up with someone who represents one of these wine regions, but I thought, you know, to kick off, uh, this, this Friday episode, we'd each talk about one region we think is sort of underrepresented. And I feel like Zach, since you have the interview, you should go first. Mm -hmm. Sure. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna talk about BC um, and the Okanagan Valley because um, longtime listeners will know I've actually talked about this on a podcast like way back in the oh, early we days. Know. Oh, we know. <laughs> yes, and and I get into that with uh, with our guest Vijay Gandhi about uh, her her work importing wine from BC. So you can hear more about that coming up later in the episode. But another place that I really believe in as a great great wine region that it baffles me, it is surprisingly hard to find wine from is. Uh, the Margaret River in Australia, um, so Western Australia. And Australian wine in general, I think, is, gets a really weird and bad reputation here in the U.S. And some mm-hmm. of it is maybe sort of deserved, like there was a lot of kind of mediocre wine, I mean, critter wine, as it's often called, uh, Yellowtail yeah. and others that came over in the 90s and 2000s that really kind of set the the impression of the market. And then you have on kind of the other side, you're sort of your Penfolds and uh, Grange and those like really sort of huge and very expensive full-bodied red blends. But the Market River is like totally different than that. Um, I've never been. I would love to go. But um, it's much cooler, um, much more kind of a Mediterranean climate. Um, you have um, a lot of beautiful Cabernet Sauvignon and uh, some Syrah. Uh, Riesling and and other kind of uh, aromatic whites. And yet, for some reason, it's like maddeningly hard to find um, a good cross-section of wines from from that part of Australia in particular here in the U.S., at least in the in this in Seattle. And I know having talked to to people um, throughout the the wine industry that even in other parts of the country and part of this is maybe just like I said, a little bit of overexposure of certain kinds of Australian wine. But I also think weirdly that like there's been so much fascination in in sort of wine circles with every last corner of Europe. And look, I love Europe. There's lots of great wine there. Um, and and certainly, you know, here in America, there's a lot of interest in American wine, also great. But like weirdly, Australia like people are not curious and and I don't understand why it's a continent. There's a lot of different growing conditions. There's a lot of different things that are possible there. And yet people seem very kind of closed off to the notion that there could be truly great wine from Australia. And yet a lot of the wines I have had the chance to try, I've been really, really impressed by. I think that happens a lot with the new world, right? With just American drinkers where it just seems to be a lot harder to get American drinkers excited. Well, I, I would say American and European, right? About yeah, any sort of sure. about any sort of like new world region, 
that's not kind of, I mean, dare I say like affordable or budget, right? It's just mm-hmm. like really hard. You know, we, as, as you guys are aware, but probably listeners aren't, we've done a lot of work in the past with like wines of Chile mm-hmm. and, you know, they have amazing high end wines from the country, premium wines. And it's, you know, it's always been difficult and it's difficult for Argentina and it's difficult for, for, for a lot, you know, as Americans, we're happy to like find our sort of wine regions we think are premium and, and support them like Napa. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just weird. Like for the, for the rest of the new world, it's difficult. It's really difficult. You don't hear people being like, you know what? I'm going to start collecting Australian wine. And I don't know why. Right. Joanna, what about you? Yeah. So I, you know, we've, we've certainly written about this before on Vine Pair. I think Adam, you've written about it, but I was going to say the Finger Lakes. Um, I think a lot of people probably when they think of New York wine or even, yeah, I suppose New York wine, East Coast wine, they think of Long Island and the North Fork, but um, the Finger Lakes, I very, I feel like I re- very rarely see wine from the Finger Lakes on menus and um, even in the city. And uh, it's definitely an up and coming region um, for Riesling, but probably for more, right, Adam, for other grapes? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, now, I mean, it's always been a region that hasn't Riesling for sure. And then it's always been a region that hasn't like truly figured out what red varietal it wants to be known for. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have some producers like Nathan Kendall who are making like incredible Pinot Noir. Then you have other producers that are making really great Cab Franc. Um, You know, Ravines is one of those producers. Uh, We, we, you know, Herman Weimer that we've talked about before. So it just, it totally depends. And so the region's kind of figuring that out, but yeah, I agree. I think if you're in New York and, you know, sort of what I was talking about in the beginning, New York Psalms really talk a lot about the Finger Lakes recently because it's a place they can go up pretty easily and do harvest, right? So Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, so then they they become obsessed with that region because they did harvest there. But um, it's not as well known, even like two or three states to our south, right? Where they Mm -hmm. was like, wait, the Finger Lakes, they make wine? So even though it's considered now like a world-class Riesling region, um, it it hasn't really expanded as much as it, it should outside of, you know, certain places. For sure. I wonder if that's also like a just a capacity issue because like it's still a pretty small region in terms of production. And so you very quickly when you get outside of New York State may run into issues where there might be people interested in it in Missouri or in Arizona. But like if all that makes it into their state is, you know, three cases of wine, it's pretty yeah. hard to get that into people's hands. Mm-hmm. No, that's really true. That's really true. I mean, I think it just it just it's so difficult with what the capacity looks like and there, and, but you also want to like, would, could there be more people who were more interested? Right. So like if, if people were more aware, then we sure. they plant more. So it's always, so I'm going to do one that's, I think a little bit of a curveball because some people are going to tell me that they think a lot of people know this region, but I think again, it's one that is not as well known as it should be. And that's Santa Barbara. Mm. I think that most consumers who are aware of wine from California are very aware of Napa Sonoma. Mm-hmm. They may now have heard of Paso, mm-hmm. but they actually are not aware of Santa Barbara. And that's always so shocking to me. Even when I talk to my friends who live in LA, like, well, you guys know you like have a pretty world-class wine region, like close to Los Angeles. And I'll talk to Santa Barbara, like, oh yeah, it's got the most beautiful beaches. We go there all the time to go to the beaches. I'm like, yeah, but do you <laughs> go there to like, to taste wines? And you know, and I mean, some of like the best Chardonnay I've had, some of the best Pinot Noir I've had from California has come from Santa Barbara. Um, so I just think it's it's a region that again 
could be an issue that you're saying, Zach, which is there's not a lot of it. It's really hard to get wines from there. But some of my favorite wineries, my favorite winemakers uh, are you know are in that region, and it's been one of the most memorable visits I've had because it's also it's still a region where like I find there to be very little pretension. Like everyone's really fun and having a great time. And like what I do like about Santa Barbara is uh, they also have that like downtown area where basically you can sort of do a crawl to different tasting rooms. They're they're called like the wine garages or something. (laughs) Um, And people really, you know, have a great time. And a lot of the wineries from the region sort of have uh, setups there. So you can see what, you know, people are doing and, uh, and get really excited about it. And, you know, like, Lots of great people are making wine there. So mine would be Santa Barbara, which I think some people are, again, are going to say like, that's crazy. But I really do think it's it's one that not enough people know in the same way that I think Finger Lakes is that. And in a lot of ways, um, you know, regions in Australia and the one you're about to talk to uh, in British Columbia is as well. So Zach, we're going to let you get to that interview. Cool. Sounds good. From Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal, and today I'm speaking with Vijay Gandhi, who's the founder of Cascadia Wine Merchants, which is a wine importer and retailer focused on the wines of British Columbia. Vijay, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Yeah, well, I'm very excited about this because as listeners to the podcast will know, um, I'm a big fan of of many of the wines from British Columbia, uh, from the Okanagan Valley uh, in particular, and it's always exciting to uh, talk to other people, especially people here in the U.S., who share my passion uh, because one of the you know sad things about the wines is that uh, until recently, I think, it was very hard to get them in the U.S. So uh, we will talk about that. But let's start with this question, Vijay. Kind of what is your what is your background with BC wine and, and how did you kind of come come to decide that, you know, importing wine was what you wanted to do uh, with <laughs> your life? When You mean when did the wine bug bite me? <laughs> exactly. Well, you know that. Yes, yeah. I suppose that would be one way to put it. So actually, I don't have a huge background in BC wine. Wine happened to come into my life after I've had a career, a corporate career, after I've had a career in behavioral health. And it was mostly uh, an understanding of just how to run a business or how we were going to create a business for BC wines in the U.S. um, so that they had some sort of platform here to sell their wines. And um, when I moved to California seven years ago, you know, I grew up in Vancouver. So people in Vancouver, we go to the Okanagan Valley during long weekends or in the summer with our family members. And of course, we're there for the lake, this beautiful lake that runs right down the center of the valley. Um, And you enjoy barbecues and you have fun with your family. But what you do on one of or two of those days is you go to the wineries because there's, I believe, over 200 (laughs) of them in, in the Okanagan Valley. And so I was very familiar uh, with wine tasting in British Columbia. And when you go to local restaurants in Vancouver, uh, I was living in downtown Vancouver, we're so spoiled for local wine and um, incredible food. Uh, so of course, I moved out here and I was exploring the restaurant culture in California and in the Silicon Valley. It's pretty amazing in the peninsula here. Uh, I would just see wine from Germany, New Zealand, Australia, just about every country that you can think of that grows fantastic wine except for Canada mm-hmm. and um, that really bothered me <laughs> I thought wow this is a really missing link because we're just a two-hour flight from British Columbia for example from California and I cannot believe it has not crossed that or the border so I began to research I reached out to a few friends that 
what um, we're familiar with BC trade in the US. And that started my journey into BC wine. And so let's start with this. Um, I want to talk more in this conversation about what getting BC wine into the US has been like and what some of the challenges have been. But I want to start again, because many of our listeners will, um, will not be familiar with the Okanagan Valley with British Columbia mm-hmm. wine more broadly. You know, you mentioned the lake. Can you kind of mm-hmm. talk about some of the more important aspects of the region and kind of stylistically mm-hmm. or, or even in terms of varieties, like what kind of wines are we talking about? Oh, absolutely. Um, the Okanagan Valley, I believe, is known as the Fruit Bowl of Canada. Um, it's always been a growing region and it starts at the 50th parallel, 49th parallel and kind of works its way all the way down to the Washington and BC border. Um, and the reason why I'm bringing up Okanagan Valley, it's because it's the biggest growing region in British Columbia. Um, there are also other growing regions like the Similkameen Valley, Fraser Valley, and maybe I'll get into that a little bit more later. Um, but the Okanagan Valley in particular, if you want to picture it uh, for the folks that live out here in California, um, think of the Napa Valley and then think of a 50 mile lake that runs right down the center. Mm-hmm. That is the best way for me to describe it to someone here. And what you can experience around that is a lot of lake life, uh, food and art culture, um, but of course, a lot of beautiful vineyards. And uh, when I first began introducing the Okanagan to, uh, because like I, I've mentioned to you in the past, it's a, it's a, there's a big education piece to this for sure. U.S. consumers. And I put a lot of time and effort into telling stories and sharing uh, geographic traits and things like that about the valley. Um, but when I, when I first started ex- showing photos, people would compare it to lo- Lake Como in Italy because it does mm-hmm. kind of look like this Mediterranean lifestyle. And um, so it, it, the really unique thing about growing wine in the Okanagan Valley, though, is there's microclimates throughout the Okanagan Valley. So as you are further north and you're working your way down to the center and down to the south, you can grow very different types of grapes in each area. Um, And the most prominent recently in conversation has been the Sonora Desert region, which starts at the bottom of British Columbia, right along the border there um, in a Soyuz region. And it works its way into Washington and Oregon, actually. So folks aren't really familiar with the Sonora Desert region, but it's the only desert that exists in Canada. And it is right smack dab on the border (laughs) of Washington and British Columbia. And so what you can... Uh, growers are growing fabulously out there uh, a really nice big red Bordeaux sort of wines, uh, Bordeaux mm-hmm. style, or even Syrah, um, Cabernet Francs, uh, Petit Verdots. Um, those are uh, what we've seen come up of there that do really, really well in the U.S. Um, of course, people are not looking for something uh, very fruity, but you're also getting a lot of herbaceousness and um, uh, big reds. So as you work your way further north, you can expect to see really great Burgundian style wines as well. Kind of in the center, I would say they're, they're so fantastic Pinot Noir. I think some mm-hmm. of the best we've ever had, a Chardonnay. And as you work your way even further north, you get Pinot Gris, really beautiful dry Riesling, which Canada is known for. Um, and Gewürztraminer, I think is another fantastic one. And one of my recent favorites from Canada is Grunewald Liener. Um, mm. It's just, it's just mind blowing. Um, specifically, one winemaker uh, who we've been purchasing from, and it's just been doing so amazing in the U.S. Very cool. And so, you know, you've hit on one of the one of the key features, I think, of the of the Okanagan Valley, which is this incredible diversity of, of as you said, microclimates and the potential for a number of different varieties to thrive and, and different styles of wine. 
that said, you know, um, one thing, you know, I'm I, I'm based here in in Seattle, and in a in a you know kind of concern I've heard at times from from people in the trade here in Washington on the on the wine production side is, you know, it's it's sometimes hard to to sell to an export or to a to a distant market a wine region whose strength is everything, you know, it, it, it's sometimes mm-hmm. easier, you know, the, the Willamette Valley in Oregon has had an easier time branding itself globally as a, as the spot for Pinot Noir than it would have if it were, if it were trying to showcase six or seven different varieties or styles. And so I'm right. wondering, you know, obviously you're not um, yet able to import the full gamut of everything that's grown in, in BC, but is it, is it challenging sometimes to say, okay, well here have, you know, or, or, or alternatively, is it a, a, an advantage from your perspective to be able to say, here is a here is a Cabernet Sauvignon based wine from a Soyuz, and here is a, a Gewürztraminer from you know from you know from Vernon or whatever, and here's everything in between. You know, is that diversity make it easier or harder for you? I think the di- diversity makes it easier, actually. And a comment that I received very early on in when I started Cascadia was are you crazy? You want to sell <laughs> Canadian wine in the Napa Valley wine region? <laughs> yeah. And I said, you know, people here, the demographic is very wine educated. And when you have a wine educated demographic, they're looking to try new things. And I'm not trying to say that the Okanagan Valley wines are going to compare to wines from other parts of the world. I think what's really beautiful about it is that um, winemakers are really showcasing the land there. They're growing things that really complement the soil and the, you know, the geography there. And so, for example, a Riesling from Okanagan Valley, which is, you know, pretty much well known across the world now, I think um, Karen McNeil talks about in the Wine Bible, and I've seen in a lot of different prints, is that it's much drier than what you would get from something in Europe. Um, For example, same thing with Sauvignon Blanc, you know, some of these wines that you would get in New Zealand, a little bit more tropical um, fruit on the nose, but it would be a little bit more minerality and grass and lemon here in on the Pacific Northwest side. So I just, I'm tr- not trying to compare it to anything in the U.S. I'm just saying, hey, this is something really beautiful. It's kind of new world now. I mean, I feel like we're, it's not as new world anymore in my eyes, because I feel based on the attention we're getting here on our products, um, more people understand it and are starting to recognize it. So um, especially because it's landing itself in so many publications. I mean, the 2017 Red Icon from Painted Rock last year was um, awarded Wine of the Year for Decanter. You know, that's a big deal. And um, so there's plenty of wines in our portfolio, if you take a quick peek, um, that do have many accolades. But even then, you still have to taste the wine and understand it for yourself. Gotcha. So let's talk a little bit about this this education piece that I know has been a big part of your business. And and you know, I, I would imagine that you know, the, for for many people that you have approached or talked to or met, the first thing hurdle you have to get over is like, wait, they make wine in Canada, and mm-hmm. and then maybe maybe subsequent to that is like, uh, they make something besides ice wine. So kind of starting out with people, how do you how do you kind of get them over their assumption that all of Canada is, you know, uh, tundra. <laughs> Actually, well, when I began purchasing for our portfolio, I opted not to purchase ice wine. And I did get slap. I did get a slap on the wrist from a buyer one time. <laughs> Actually, a pretty well-known buyer out of Los Angeles. And he said to me, why do you not have ice wine in your portfolio? And I simply replied with, 
because I really want you to know what else we're excited about. I really want you to know the other varietals and types of wines we're growing out in Canada. And um, ice wine uh, is predominantly grown, of course, in the Niagara Peninsula region and then Ontario region. And um, it, it's the biggest production of wine in, in Canada, style of wine. Uh, but I was introducing right from the get-go Cabernet Franc, Syrah, Pinot Gris, um, Chardonnay. These were things that I feel like captured our audience. And like I said earlier, I wasn't uh, showcasing something to compare it to something here. It was completely individualistic. This is this is coming from this particular region, and this is when you what you're going to taste, smell, feel. Makes sense, yeah. And you know, you when you sort of started out by bringing in some of these wines and, and sort of consciously steering away from maybe the ice wine stereotype or what or maybe what people's expectations would have been. And being in California and in in and around Napa Valley and, and Sonoma and these places that are so acclaimed for wine themselves, you know, you mentioned mm-hmm. before in our conversation that, you know, you, you found that audience to be actually a, receptive to BC wine because they, wine is a big part of their life. And, and as much as they might love Napa or Sonoma or California wine, generally, that's not maybe the extent of what they want to drink all the time. Mm-hmm. As you've looked to expand beyond California, because I you, you sell to over 30 states, Yes. Are you finding, like, I guess, are you finding that you're, you're, the people who are coming to you for wine, are they people who are Canadian expats or otherwise, you know, already have a fondness for wines from British Columbia? Or are they people who are really looking to discover something new and one way or another come across your wines? Great question. Um, to begin with, uh, definitely the audience was more familiar with Canadian wine. But as we've grown over the last two, three years, uh, we definitely have a lot of new consumers who are not Canadian and who are purchasing our wines regularly. And, you know, we have regular customers from Maine, from Texas, from Florida. um, And sometimes it could be that, hey, I went up to the Okanagan Valley when I was 16 with my family one time. And I heard that they grow grapes a ton of grapes now. So I'm just curious what, what what you've got in your portfolio. And actually, I have a lot of consumers that reach out to me by email to talk to me about the BC wine portfolio that we have or the Ontario wine portfolio that we have, which is really nice. And that's what I love about our business being a smaller boutique style shop, um, because it's easier for people to shop around and learn a little bit something about something new. And um, but we initially started off with uh, our consumers who were either from Canada or had family members, um, you know, in Canada and have visited out there. Okay. So that was, that was, there was a lot of familiarity, but that grew, um, of course, like on our social media, it's really amazing uh, what an incredible platform social media can be for uh, directing consumers to your website or to your product. I think right now on Instagram, we have over 10,000 followers And that really cultivated itself over the last couple of years. And we get a lot of engagement on there and people are very curious and we get a lot of traffic from our social media to our website for purchases. That makes sense. And I'm wondering too, you know, you, you also obviously have a direct to, a pretty big direct to consumer piece. You know, did you see even more growth in that once, um, you know, the pandemic started and people were looking for, you know, they had to find sources for wine that were, I mean, A, they had to find sources for wine that could get delivered to their door, but B, probably were looking for sort of adventures without leaving the house. Yes, exactly. It was an adventure for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, that yeah, too. Exactly. Um, 
we did see growth in direct to consumer sales uh, during the pandemic. Um, and especially like you mentioned, because of the convenience, we're completely an online store. It's, you're easily able to purchase on our online store and have it delivered to your preferred address. And um, we were also hosting many virtual tastings and the virtual tastings, actually, there were more U.S. consumers that had no attachment to Canada at all. Um, so that which was great because that's just folks that are curious and feeling adventurous. Right. Um, so that was a really interesting part of last year's growth was that that was driving more U.S. consumers uh, to venture out into Canadian wines, whereas before that, maybe we did have more Canadian expats or visitors or family members of Canadians purchasing. So last year was huge for us. Gotcha. And I actually want to step back. I know I realized we kind of skipped over some of the the genesis of this whole idea. I mean, we talked about kind of your your back your background, but but I know and, and you know uh, listeners might be familiar with this. Some of them may have even you know kind of seen some stuff I've written about this in the past. That you know one big obstacle that I had seen in talking to people throughout the wine industry in getting wine from British Columbia into the United States has right. been just. A maybe a limited amount of production. You know, the, the production in BC has grown a lot lately, but but you know, is still not enormous, uh, especially when you start entering the global market. And B that a lot of wineries in in British Columbia, quite candidly, didn't see the point in you know the the realities of of selling wine for export or just selling wine into distribution as opposed to over the counter to or you know to, through your wine club or whatever. So meaning that they had to take you know, they probably had to take a lower, you know, they had to sell the wine for less so that it can enter, you know, that can go through, you know, import duties and, uh, you know, the three-tier system here in the U.S. and all that and still be right. affordable-ish for people. So I don't want to get into all the in- intricacies of that um, particularly, but I do want to ask, Vijay, were there, was it challenging to get wineries in BC on board or did you find that most of them were really sort of excited about the opportunity to be in the U.S. market? Well, a, a fantastic question, and I understand what you're saying because that was that can, I see how that is a challenge. And I think initially, when I started to work on this project, maybe because I'm Canadian and I was just overly passionate. I'm not saying other importers are not, but I just was really gung ho about making sure I could make this happen. So that's how where my head was at right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but the big challenge was okay, how much do BC wineries know about exporting into the U.S.? Because this is not just an education piece for U.S. consumers. This is also an education piece for BC wineries to export into the U.S. And so I had, I worked with a, a wine consultant from the U.S. quite closely who had 30 years plus experience of working with many, on, in many different facets of the industry out here. And he helped us coach, uh, he helped coach me into how I could help coach wineries from BC and Uh, what would be expected of them here. And that is what I'm doing till today. Um, So for example, I take care of once I've met with a winery and we've decided we're going to work together, I really do take care of all all the, all the customs transportation, um, you know, any sort of licensing that is required. I want to be, I want to make them feel at ease um, so that the things that we can work through are things, for example, like pricing, helping them understand what the pricing structure is like in the U S and wineries are excited. They're very excited, but the hurdle for them is having to understand what is expected of them. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm very transparent when it comes to pricing strategies. Um, and it's because I do exactly everything by the book. 
So, um, you know, we do Excel spreadsheets or whatever I need to show them. This is where the price points need to sit so that it's competitive with the pricing in Canada. And that's a very, very important piece for marketing your brand in the U.S. Yeah. actually. Yeah, for sure. And and I mean, I think you probably, you know, find that both you have to be competitive in price with how the, what the wine costs in Canada, but also, of course, competitive in the broader, you know, American marketplace. Um, you know, to some extent, the wine is, is a specialty item. So, I, you know, people might not be expecting to get a BC wine for $7, but but at the same time, you did mention, obviously, there's there's been a lot of press you know, more recently and some, you know, some very uh, glowing reviews and things like that. So that creates demand or, or at least the sort of the notion of, of a sort of premium experience, which, which maybe supports a right. higher price point. I'm wondering too, you know, we've talked a lot and, and obviously it's interesting to talk about the sort of, a lot of the people who have purchased from you and are purchased from you who are just kind of wine consumers. But I imagine you have some trade component to this too. I know I've certainly talked to plenty of wine buyers, sommeliers, et cetera, who are, who have maybe even been to BC and like me have been frustrated by the inability to then include any BC wines in their program. So kind of how do you interact with the trade and, and, and where, where are some of like, where do you see some of your wines popping up? Uh, Another great question, because as you know, I'm an importer. We're also a distributor uh, for retail and for um, restaurants, wine clubs, um, et cetera, brick and mortars, things like that. Um, And for someone like yourself, uh, what I find that um, my wholesale clients feel when they look at my portfolio is that they do see that we're picking, um, the best wines from the regions that we're sourcing from. So whether the accolades speak to that or they're familiar with the winemaker or the particular brand, um, it is picking it as something from like, and like a needle in a haystack. So um, so first of all, our portfolio is, is um, attractive for buyers, direct to consumer or wholesale. And secondly, I do walk them through the pricing um, price points. And I find that our wholesale clients seek us out sometimes. I don't, I haven't pushed the retail buyer or the white restaurant buyer as much, but we do have a really fantastic portfolio of buyers there as well. And um, it, it, it's sometimes it is still an education piece. And, um, you know, hopefully when the borders open up uh, in a comfortable manner, again, uh, you know, we can continue to fly. We have, we have flown out to the Okanagan Valley with some buyers in the past uh, mm. so that they could meet with winemakers and we could visit facilities. And um, these are buyers that have become um, advocates for BC wineries. So sure. uh, in the long term, uh, they start off as a restaurant buyer or a song that we worked with um, that has eventually become a BC wine ambassador. Very cool. So th- there's, yeah, it, it's been, it's actually been a really fantastic experience. And I personally feel that I have a fantastic relationship with my regular uh, restaurant and wine club buyers. And I think maybe the the last kind of question I want to ask you, VJ, is sort of um, you know it's a little bit of a of a broad one, but but at the same time, um, I think a fun place to kind of discuss. So we talked a little bit about the sort of styles of wine that you can find in British Columbia, especially in the Okanagan Valley, and um, and you know some of the you know just kind of what makes it a great place to to grow grapes and to make wine. But I, and and I know that you know you mentioned and it's true that um, for now the you know going to Canada is is doable but obviously many people are you know kind of there's some questions about how how much people want to travel et cetera et cetera but have mm-hmm. you thought about in addition to sort of 
making, uh, you know, taking trips with with buyers and stuff like that is is a, is there any part of the business model down the road that involves some kind of wine tourism, or is that something that you're going to kind of leave to the wineries up there? Actually, we did have a tour company reach out to us last year. Um, a couple of fantastic ladies that are, I'm not sure if I can mention brands or names yet, yeah. but um, okay. a couple of fantastic females uh, that are running a business that do do wine tours um, and also kind of more adventurous uh, trails in between. And mm-hmm. um, I do have a couple of clients here in the U.S. that would be interested in that. So um, we've been in discussion of possibly partnering in the future uh, to make uh you know, create an unforgettable experience from clients from the U.S. that want to do something like that. Yeah, because I'll add just, you know, editorializing a bit that, um, I mean, I've been to a lot of wine regions in the world. Um, few of them are as just sort of, you know, kind of beautiful as, uh, in particular, the Okanagan and actually the Similkameen as well, also very striking. Oh, it is. Um, right. and, and, off, and also afford, you know, a lot of exciting non-wine activities. I don't know why you would bother, but some people mm-hmm. like to go hiking, I guess, or whatever. There's, <laughs> exactly. As you mentioned, there, there's there's a very large lake that people do things on. Um, so yeah, so there's lots to see and do. And so yeah, I, I always, I, you know, when I talk about BC and the Okanagan in particular, I think it's important. I always like to note that not only are there great wines there, which is certainly true for, for the region and, and other places, but it is a particularly strikingly beautiful place to visit, which is not it's certainly true of other wine regions, but it's not true of all, for sure. Yes. And, you know, that's the thing is in the Okanagan, there's activities throughout the whole year. I mean, yes, there's wine tasting in the warmer months, um, but people go snowshoeing and they still go wine tasting in the winter. <laughs> yeah. And they love hiking. And I've, I'm just so blown away. But, you know, growing up in Canada myself, I've always been an outdoorsy person myself. You know, I love hiking or bike riding or camping. And these are aspects of Canada that are very exciting, I think, for consumers from outside of Canada. So now if you create an experience like that and wine tasting and meeting with winemakers and growers as a part of that, um, that's just mind blowing. (laughs) So I think um, there's definitely that's something that, um, you know, we are in the in the works. uh, That's in the works. But um, it's just right now. It's just a waiting game. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, for, for when life gets back to normal a little bit. <laughs> for sure. Well, Vijay, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate yeah, it. Uh, very excited to, to learn that there is um, some expanding access to BC wine uh, here in the States. And for people who are interested in, in the wines and in Cascadia, what's the best way to, to find out more? You can check out our website at CascadiaWineMerchants.com. Um, there's a little bit of an About Us page, but we try to keep your shopping experience simple Um, very easy access to some of the most fantastic wines you'll have from Canada and we ship straight right to your door to over 30 states. Fantastic. Again, thank you so much, BJ. Oh, thank you so much, Doug. That was a super interesting interview. Thank you. Yeah, man. Great job. I mean, you know, you got, you got, you got a really good, uh, good rapport with people. You know, I I like, I like the questions (laughs) you ask, uh, you know, very, very in-depth, really good, super interesting. I hope everyone else found that interesting as well. Does it make you want to go to British Columbia? It does. I would like yes. to go. I would like to go. It definitely yeah. does. It definitely does. And now for something totally unrelated again. Uh, <laughs> as we said, uh, to end our Friday episodes, we're always going to try something a little bit off the wall. Uh, and today, we're trying something that none of us have had, though some of the Vine Pair staff are fans. Uh, and so you're going to be shocked when I say what this is. Uh, twisted tea. Oh, yeah. So... <laughs> 
Twisted Tea was the precursor to, to, to Truly, let's say. It was like Sam Adams' quiet sleeper hit no one wanted to talk about uh, that was like really helping the company grow at the time that they were still talking a lot about, you know, Sam Adams, right? So, but Boston Beer really had, had put a lot behind Twisted Tea. Um, I have mine in a glass because Joanne and I are splitting a 24 ounce. And as we said, <laughs> she's in the phone booth. So I can smell mine from here and it definitely smells like tea. Mm-hmm. Um, so none of us have had this before at all. I've never had a single Twisted Tea, right? You guys have never had any of the flavors, right? No. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Joanna, you and I have half and half, right? So it's like their version of like an Arnold Palmer. Mm-hmm. And or perhaps a John Daly, since it's boozy. Right. Right. Oh, so good. And you, Zach, have the original. I got 24 ounces of the original staring at me. Okay. <laughs> so, so I guess I guess let's taste it. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it smells like a lemonade iced tea. I'm not going to lie. Oh, man. That is, that is dangerously drinkable. Ah, ours is a little bitter for me. It's probably from the lemon. Or, you know, whatever approximation of Fiend. flavoring. A thing that I find fascinating about my can, and I'm not sure how this is possible, it does not have any nutritional information on it. Oh, there's a lot of sugar in this. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sure there is, but like I kind of assume they had to put that on the can. Here's what like, I'm going to say. Maybe it predates that. Twisted. <laughs> if you I don't think pass, it's, that it's grandfathered in. If you oh, gave I guess that's me, true, yeah. If you gave me the 50-50... Mm-hmm. And you told me this came out of an Arizona bottle. Mm-hmm. Yes, I would totally believe you. Yeah, like yeah, I would Arizona not think this had alcohol. The, here. the alcohol is completely hidden in this. Like yeah. it's yeah, like as you said, it's it's dangerous. Like I don't know. Like look, an alcoholic version of tea is not my my beverage of choice for alcohol delivery. But you know, for some people, I guess it is. It, you're right, Zach. It's, it's kind of like dangerously drinkable i don't hate it like i hated the cacti yeah i feel like this is just more successful uh than like a hard seltzer but again this this so i just looked it up and granted this is just what the internet gave me but this 24 ounce can has like almost 400 calories in it yeah it's a lot (laughs) and how much definitely playing in a different sphere and what's the alcohol percentage five percent right so that's that's a lot of calories for from sugar yeah yeah that's a lot of calories. I mean, it really does taste like basically, you know, someone took a, a 50-50 and added a little bit of booze. And you, But you really don't taste the alcohol at mm-hmm. all. No, it's dangerous. I, I don't taste it at all in the original either. Um, it's also very interesting to me. There are funny things. I just want to – I just have to talk. I'll post a picture of this. But I have to talk about the can because I don't know how it is on the 50-50. But, like, for one, this can has, like – pictures of people in like very grainy low quality pictures of people oh, yeah. enjoying twisted tea that they presumably <laughs> like either posted on social media or like sent in or whatever so good. Um, it looks like they submitted it it also makes a, a point to point out on the can that it is not carbonated which can confirm yes. not carbonated mm-hmm. which is interesting to me too like you know you talked about this in the in setting it up adam but like this definitely like predates the seltzer boom and you can see like how both there is the like faint outline of what would happen with seltzer where like it's malt beverage it's flavored it's like but it's like so like so just like clearly predates that a touch and was maybe reaching out to a slightly different kind of consumer and like i don't know like i I drank a lot of arizona iced tea when i was in college Mm -hmm. um and so it's like got some weird nostalgia and i'm sure that if this had existed i probably would have drank a lot of it because like you know booze plus like a flavor i liked i don't really 
want to drink all of it. Like I definitely am not going to. Um, it's also like, you know, the middle of the afternoon here. Yeah. But like I I this to me is like I, I bet we'll do we'll go through a lot of other drinks. I mean, I don't know exactly what we'll do in future weeks, but like I bet we will drink a lot of other things that I before we get to something that I like as much as this. Hmm. Yeah, I I'm already getting like a little bit of that like sugary thing in the back of my throat. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like that. Yeah. Like I don't think I could drink a lot more of this. Like I said, I don't really like canned sweet teas right. anyways. They're always too sugary for me. Like, so I don't think I would drink a lot of this, but I don't find it. I guess what I'm saying is I could not see the appeal at all of cacti. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like, like you must be a psychopath if you like that. <laughs> Quite possibly. Whereas yes. this, I'm like, I totally see why people like this. I totally yeah. see why. Has there it, it's is made a, a comeback, market. right? Yes, it has. It's really popular now. Um, I to- and I totally see why people like it. Yeah. So anyways, all right, cool. Guys, talk yeah. to you Monday. Yeah. <laughs> and hey, folks, if you have suggestions, we want more ideas for Please. what to drink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to There's know. a lot of pumpkin in our future. No, don't. Uh-huh. No. Mm-hmm. Yes. No, no, <laughs> hard no. All you're going to get is me going. Retching, yeah. <laughs> but it was that's great fine. last week. I like it when you drink something that you hate. It's much more interesting. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, fine. Talk to you guys next week. Peace Thanks, out. Thanks, guys. Bye. <laughs> Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcast. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair tasting director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making the show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.